0: tasah bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Buddha namang sangham namassaha Uh, of course, one prop. It's a a lunar observance night. It's also the night that we do a changeover. We do a little changing of the guard. Uh, The monastics that were on uh, forest practice last week uh, come back out. And whoever's going on forest practice tonight is there jumping off point so we will be going on force practice to two monastics. And we do this pretty much on and off through the through the lesson. It's an opportunity for each one of the community members to have a chance to go a little deeper. Spend a week uh, not doing work meetings, not doing puja, not doing uh, the community activities for the most part, with the exception of the Patimoka and the Vinaya class. So we've had a few weeks of forest practice, and last week was supposed to be my week, and something came up, and I couldn't go. So I switched off with somebody else. And tonight's supposed to be in the beginning of the week that I'm supposed to have. And uh, I wasn't actually anticipating giving a Dhamma talk as my final my final act before going into Prud- into this uh, into this retreat. But something came up. And uh, so here I am. And <clears throat> for some reason it reminded me of something that happened to me earlier this week where I was out working on my beloved deer bait station. The Deer bait station, it seems like I love it because I spend so much time on it, but it's uh, it's this project that we have here at the monastery to uh, do something to help reduce and control the population of ticks so that we have hopefully fewer tick bites. And uh, and thereby fewer uh, lowering the, the chances of anybody getting disease and so uh, the idea behind the bait station is that uh, there's a uh, uh, this place where the deer are attracted to come and to feed and eat some free corn so we put out some free corn for the deer they come and when they come to eat it they brush their faces uh, unwittingly up against some uh, rollers that are wetted with uh, the And if they have ticks, then the the permethrin will make those ticks go away. And the ticks need the deer in order to complete their life cycle. So if they they can't get a blood meal, then they won't be able to lay their eggs. And if they don't lay their eggs, then next year's population of ticks will be less. So that's the theory behind this thing. And we've been working on it for on and off for a couple of years. finally got it working this week. And like almost as my very last visit out to that location before I'm sort of leaving it alone and letting it just do its job, uh, I, was, I was driving this little vehicle that we have that someone lent us called a, a Gator. It's, a, it's a kind of an ATV with a little bed in the back and a place to haul tools and uh, very handy. Much easier than taking stuff around in a wheelbarrow. So I was in the gator and I pulled out of the meadow where the deer bait station is and turned around and came down the gravel drive back to the central area to put tools away. And along the way, apparently, I disturbed a bee. Uh, these are out they're really heavy right now. They're, they're feeding on all the flowers that are doing their last hurrah. And this bee was extremely unhappy with me, and she got inside my boot. I was wearing galoshes, and started stinging me on the on the cab while I'm driving this vehicle at pretty high speed. And uh, I wasn't at first. I wasn't sure what it was. I thought I was having some sort of. I was just shocked I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I thought maybe I was having like a one shooting pains in my leg for, for unknown reasons. But then I got up to where I was going and I looked down and I said, Oh, there's this bee here. And, and I, I kind of brushed her away and then I floored it to get away from the <laughs> bee. And when I got to where I was um, uh, going, I got out of the gator and there she is again. She's on my neck. She's trying to stay, She's been chasing me <laughs> from the meadow. So she's really unhappy with me. And fortunately, Tani Pani was there, and he he captured the bee in his hat and took her away and calmed her down. And uh, I was just reflecting on how uh, like, so shocking and unexpected that was to be. Assaulted by this bee, and I'm sure that she felt the same way. Like, you know, I, I did something with the gator that really uh, pushed her over the edge, <laughs> and so she she was being really ferocious. I had uh, three pretty big stings on my on my calf. This is the kind of bee that stings more like a wasp. I think she didn't uh, didn't leave a stinger behind. She she got me three times. So my calf swelled up and all these kind of knock-on effects of that feasting and uh, so it seemed like somehow this this illustrates the a point that's really important it's easy to forget that we don't know what's going to happen we're always kind of on edge mm-hmm. we go through our lives thinking that we know what's going to happen next and our, our brains are actually designed to help us predict what's gonna happen next. But it's pretty easy to fall into the habit of thinking that you know what's going to happen next. And having events come and surprise you is actually a good therapy. Wakes you up to the reality and it can bring you back to the truth. So the truth is, you know, I, I Don't actually know at any given moment uh, whether I'll even make it to puja or not in in any given evening. Uh, When I came in here and sat down, I thought I knew what was going to happen, and it turns out that I didn't know. And so I just have to respond as best I can to the situation as it presents itself. Just like with the bee, and just like not being able to have my my scheduled forest practice last week and having to go roll with the punches, as it, as it were. <clears throat> So, there's this reflection that we're re- re- requested by the Buddha to do very frequently. That's the one uh, where we, one reflects about the fact that we have not gone beyond aging. uh, I am subject to aging, I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness, I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death, I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And I am the honor of my karma. Born of my Kama, heir with my Kama, supported by my Kama. Whatever Kama I shall do for good or for ill, of that of that I will be the heir. So those five little reflections are very powerful if we take them seriously, if we let them inform our lives. So the uh, the cumulative effect of practice and of bearing these reflections in mind makes us more s- like, supple, less rigid, uh, more, more able to roll with the punches as it were. So uh, if you are suddenly being stung by a bee, and uh, part of you is not really surprised I was surprised, but I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't enraged by it. I wasn't uh, offended so much by it. And I, I didn't. Um, my reaction was one of, of almost sympathizing with the bee. I, you know, I felt kind of sorry that they made her so mad. And I think that's because a reflection about karma. The more we reckon that everything that we do is going to have some effect in the future, the more that we see that for ourselves, the easier it is to not do unskillful things. And of course, the more practice we get at restraining ourselves from doing that which is unskillful, the more practice we get, the more expert we become. So we're, we're really training ourselves to become experts at not doing things that are unhealthy. Refraining from doing that, which is uh, conducive to a bad outcome, either for ourselves or others, either now or in the future. And that's a huge part of our practice right there, just, just refraining, just holding ourselves back from doing that, which is unwholesome. And the other, another good chunk of it is uh, encouraging ourselves, guiding ourselves, training ourselves to do what is wholesome, to do what conduces to the benefit and welfare of ourselves and others now in the future and in the future. So when we're confronted with a situation, our training can come, to, can sort of be there to guide us. And, uh, with repeated practice and with a cre- repeated reflection, we become more and more extemporaneously capable of doing what's what's worthy, and what's good, and what's right. This is the uh, one of the many fruits of practice. The Buddha talked about practice as having uh, a gradual quality to it, a slope or an incline. Uh, we don't uh, we don't get all the benefits up front, nor do we all get all the benefits at the very end, but we we accumulate them along the way as we go. And this is another important thing to bear in mind, that the the tiny little gestures of wholesomeness and the tiny little gestures of restraint, um, the payoff for each one of those is maybe relatively tiny. But it accumulates over time. The same thing goes for tiny little transgressions tiny little unwholesome acts. The comma of that might, in, in the present moment, might not be very, might not be a big deal. Killing an insect or uh, telling a small white line. But it does accumulate, it does uh, incline the mind more of the same this is one of the ways that comma works i used to think of comma as being like a there was a uh, something like a cosmic bookkeeper who was keeping a ledger on my good and bad conduct uh, and it was going to it was, i had like a bank account that that was going to Cash me out at some point. Uh, my initial understanding of Kama was something like that. And this is mostly because I think uh, I was raised in the Christian tradition as a Catholic, and there was very much this understanding that God's keeping track of everything that you do, and then when you die, there'll be a judgment day, and you'll you'll be kind of dealt with accordingly depending on how uh, when they open up the record books and take a look and see how you did and uh, i think my mind just transferred that notion over from my childhood religious training to this initial encounter with the idea of karma and to me it didn't make any sense i couldn't understand well how you know how could there be a ledger or some bookkeeper But my mind kind of stuck with that, because it didn't have a better model. But much more evident later on, how Kama works. has to do with what the Buddha talked about, the inclination of the mind. Uh, Several places in the suttas, he says very plainly that whatever a practitioner repeatedly ponders considers, thinks about, and entertains, the thoughts that one entertains, um, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So the inclination of the mind, its tendency towards either thoughts of anger or thoughts of sadness or thoughts of fear or thoughts of, of moods of anxiety, moods of irritability, moods of of restlessness uh, these qualities of the mind are merely its its inclination and the mind can be inclined it can be inclined towards peace towards towards ease towards comfort and satisfaction towards equanimity and uh, unperturbedness in the midst of various circumstances and this is the Buddha's. Genius is giving us these tools that allow us to exploit, if you will, or to take advantage of this quality of the human mind. It can be inclined. If it weren't if it weren't inclinable, if it was fixed and rigid, if it was if uh, the case that whatever you were born with, uh, or whatever you came out of childhood with, that you were stuck with that, and you couldn't redirect it somehow, you couldn't get it to incline it in a different direction, then of course, um, there wouldn't be a spiritual path, there'd be no, way, no escaping from from whatever inclination that you had found yourself with. But because the mind is inclinable, because it is trainable, it's possible to completely revector it, as it were. If you think of your mind as having a certain cumulative leaning in one direction or another, like a tree that's growing in a certain way. And that by just very gently pushing on it, day after day, week after week, that you can get the whole thing to tilt in a different direction. So if your mind had been habitually inclining sort of downhill and you get it to incline uphill, then uh, once it's inclining in that direction, it's not hard to keep it going in that direction. And so this is the the work of, of practice, is to, is to get your mind gradually, gradually to take on this new meaning and the results show up in the way you respond to the events the uncertainties of life so if, it, if at one time um, encountering some physical difficulty like twisting your ankle or um, stubbing your toe might have generated a lot of curse words or uh, anger Maybe anxiety uh, or some other set of emotional reactions. Later on, after practicing for a while, you might notice that that's less intense. And later, later still, you might you might recognize that um, it's almost neutral, that it's it's uh, that these these discomforts can arise and they're on the order of being basically normal or acceptable. Unremarkable. Not worthy of getting upset about. And that's a much more comfortable way to live. And not just impersonal events that occur, like being stunned by a bee or getting sick, but even uh, our personal interactions where someone mistreats us in one way or another. Insult us, they, they uh, uh, create some mental distress in our minds. Uh, they, don't, they, they disappoint us in one way or another. Uh, and again, the mind can be completely, potentially, quite okay with these arisings. And this is the result of, of practice. And reflection is a, is a big part of it. So that reflection that I mentioned earlier, yeah, I am subject to aging, subject to death, subject to illness, and all that is mine, beloved, and pleasing will become otherwise. These are actually quite rich. They sound pretty superficial when you first hear them. Uh, like you, once you hear them, then you completely understand it, and there's nothing more to do. But when you really kind of ponder these things, like just ponder the idea of all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, obviously the first thing that we take to be mine, the most, the most me, me thing of all, uh, might be our, my body. Uh, but there's, that's something that we take to be mine. It's not just our possessions, like our, our, our car, our clothing, um, but it's it's our relationships. It's our uh, our capacities to, to do things, our abilities. Uh, it's our youth. It's our health. It's our knowledge. It's our understanding. Everything that we take to be ours, that we like, that we want to be. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty easy to take it for granted. You just assume that it that it's always going to be that way. It's mine now, it's part of me, it will always be that way. But if you really consider the, the truth that the Buddha is pointing to, you can't help but conclude that none of it is really keepable. You can't take it with you. You can hardly even keep it while you're here. And in a way, that's that's part of how this works. is a good thing. You can relinquish anything once you recognize that it's not who you are. It doesn't really belong to you. And so that, considering that, all that is mine will become otherwise, is uh, something that you can bring to mind over and over again. And consider, as you're going through uh, any difficulty, or any success, any pleasure. And you can just consider this truth. This set of reflections uh, can be a framework for examining your whole life, your entire day, and everything that happens. And it it keeps the mind in an even keel to consider things from these perspectives. And it's a way of maybe checking whether you're on the right track or not. If that reflection seems uh, onerous or doleful, depressing, um, then I would suggest that, that maybe you haven't understood it correctly. The reflection that I'm subject to illness, I'm subject to aging, I'm subject to death. That's a sobering reflection, but it's not meant to be depressing. The the effect of it in the context of practice is to make it easier to let go of things. To let go of things that aren't helpful, especially. So if, for example, you have a, a, a tendency to uh, meet other people's anger with your own anger. Someone gets angry at you, so you get angry back at them. It's really almost normal. It's quite a common characteristic that people suffer from. But as you practice and you see how that, that anger doesn't do any good, it doesn't help you, it doesn't set you free, it doesn't make your life better. Even if you can come up with all kinds of justifications for why, why it makes sense or why it's okay, the truth of the matter is, is it's not really helpful. So meeting, anger, meeting somebody else's anger with your own anger, uh, when you consider it in the context of illness, aging, and death, the idea of, of clinging to anger, clinging to that response as your go-to response, becomes less, somehow less compelling. It's, it seems kind of petty or, or trivial or unimportant or unworthy given the profundity, the weight, the weightiness of the, the fact of death looming over the whole project of your life. So it does make it actually easier to, to prioritize things accordingly. It's not meant to panic because of a sense of panic or, or worry, but more a sense of, of sobriety and, and intelligence in making the choices of what to do, how to use your time, how to train your mind, uh, where to put your efforts. So if you see clearly that there's one or another or maybe a lot of habits of the mind that could do with some pruning. The willingness to take on that project and to stick with it and follow it through and and to literally literally train yourself to abandon those things which are unwholesome and do that so repetitively that it becomes your new habit. That project is immensely assisted by this reflection, simple reflection on aging, illness, and death, the the inevitable loss of everything that we take to be us, take to be mine, take to be me, and the truth of the causal nature of karma, how we we can train our minds, and it does accumulate and it does pay off one way or another over time. Without any external ledgers, without any external judges or forces involved. It's simply cause and effect, nature in action. And again, your life is always giving you opportunities to see uh, what more needs to be done. So if you misplace your keys and you're late for an appointment, or someone gives you the cold shoulder, and you don't understand why or it starts raining and you're planning on it being clear whatever life is doing your your internal response to that is is diagnostic it's, it's showing you how things are going in terms of practice and if there's suffering then there's something that, that that's calling out to you to examine and yeah. uh, that reflection is providing you with a framework of doing, conducting that examination. And what's what's the inclination of the mind? Why is it, what's, what's the pain that's here? Why does it hurt? What, what is it that my mind is doing that's making this unpleasant or, or painful for me uh, over and beyond uh, just the ordinary discomfort that comes from encountering things which are unpleasant? So yes, it, it, it hurts to be insulted. It hurts to, be, to lose things that you care about. It hurts to be stunned by bees. Uh, but above and beyond that, our minds make problems out of these things beyond just their initial contact. And that's the pain that's worth examining because it's the pain that uh, is pointing the way towards freedom if we know how to approach it. And one way to approach it is to simply see where the mind, where, the, where there's a, a, an attitude or an inclination towards righteousness, or uh, this is how I am, or this is, uh, this is the right way to, to respond. And wherever there's that sense of me, there's going to be some degree of clinging. And wherever there's clinging, there's the possibility of recognizing it and letting it go. So coming back to that habitual response that I mentioned before, meeting another person's anger with your own anger, uh, that can take a long time to fully let go of, maybe maybe longer than you'd like or that you might expect. But even just a little bit uh, shows you the possibility. So if someone says something snarky or snippy to you, and you just manage to hold your tongue and not say something back, You can't actually do that if you have a habit of being snarky right back that you're not willing to do anything about. But if you see it for what it is and you set the intention to try to restrain it in the future, recognizing the possibility of training the mind in a wholesome way, recognizing the, the promise of being able to reformulate your character so that this doesn't come up so much anymore Undertaking it as an effort It won't be very long before you actually see it start to to change And this is true for everything Everything that causes you anguish, everything that causes you pain, everything that's problematic It's all subject to reform and the way that we reform it is bringing our, our, our intelligence, our insight, our willingness to look, our effort to try to do better, and, and our, our willingness to learn from our past mistakes. Uh, and our seemingly rigid, seemingly personal, seemingly unreformable habits turn out to be quite malleable, uh, quite subject to change also showing us uh, the truth of impermanence in a way that we can actually benefit from. So I'll leave those few thoughts for your consideration. <laughs>